Welcome to episode nine of Which Decade is Tops for Pops? The results of episode eight were published a couple of days ago on our Express Results Bulletin. So we are free to crack on with this week's selections. I am joined, as always, by Nick Parkhouse. Hello. And DJ Trev. Hello there. And since we last recorded an episode, we have had an official photo of the three of us taken together appearing in public for the very first time, enjoying a nice cup of tea. We do have some edgy photos where we're standing against a brick wall under lamplight, trying to look edgy and rock and roll. But we started with a nice cup of tea rendition of our personalities. Trev thought I had a creepy smile. I I have a resting bitch face, basically. But that was me trying to look sort of contemplative and quizzical as befits my role. You look contemplative, but contemplative as in, I wonder what your skin would taste like. <laughs> At least you had shoes on. It was actually my birthday. I, I didn't want for things to eat. Right. Our randomizer this time has given us a year suffix of two. We've not had the twos before. And it's given us another chart position of one just like last time. So we're going to be looking at number one songs in the charts on the day of recording, March the 1st, from 1962 to 2012. We have YouTube and Spotify playlists. If you can't access them in the show notes, the URLs are as follows. tinyurl.com forward slash which decade nine. That's number nine. Stick an S for Spotify on the end. You get the Spotify playlist. Stick an E for extras on the end. You get the bonus tracks playlist. I should just add that the YouTube versions on the main playlist are audio only because it creates a level playing field. And I don't want people to be influenced by the videos unless they choose to be. But on the extra tracks and bonus bits playlist, I do reprise those songs. And then I do add the videos just to make that clear. Right, let's get cracking with... The 60s. This is Can't Help Falling in Love by Elvis Presley, making his second appearance in this podcast. It was the 10th of 16 number ones that Elvis Presley had in his lifetime, and then he had five more posthumous number ones after that. Can't Help Falling in Love made Elvis Presley at the time the first act ever to have 10 number ones in the UK. Spent four weeks there and it was replaced by The Shadows with Wonderful Land. Now, this is sometimes listed as a double A side with Rockahoola Baby, but Can't Help Falling in Love is generally regarded as the lead track. And it was also the side that was included on the Elvis Presley 30 number one hits compilation in 2002. That compilation is currently at number 28 in the UK albums charts, thanks to the uh, Baz Luhrmann film. So actually, Can't Help Falling in Love is still in the charts. It's kind of weird. Both of those songs are taken from the soundtrack of Blue Hawaii. Can't Help Falling in Love was based on the melody of Plaisir d'Amour, French folk song written in 1784. And then it was later a number three hit for Andy Williams in 1970, a number four hit for the Stylistics in 1976, and a number one hit for UB40 in 1993. There was also a Celtic folk rock version by Lick the Tins, which got to 42 in 1986, and Russell Watson took a version to number 69 in 2006. I didn't think I knew this one, uh, which upon playing it 
made me realise that I absolutely do. And all I can think of is the fact that the title doesn't have I can't help fall in love because that then I'm going, oh yeah, of course I know that one. But can't help fall in love. I'm like, oh, that's uh, and I think it's weird how just one word in a title can change what the song's going to be about. Nothing brings home to me the fact that I really don't know as much about Elvis as I probably should, as listening to Elvis does. And I would have put this as kind of of a similar era to my boy, yeah, which was 13 years later. I always think of his slower stuff as being in the Vegas era, but he didn't even start his Vegas era till seven years after he recorded this. All through his catalogue, there's slow ones, then there's rock and roll ones, and then I guess weirder sequin numbers, but they pop up all the way through his catalogue of uh, recording. And I thought, Simply from what I know of pop music, Elvis Presley was someone who constantly reinvented himself. Maybe not like Bowie, but certainly like someone like Madonna. But I don't think he did. I think he was kind of just inventing a formula for what pop stars would be. Is that right? It just underlines how little I know about Elvis. Because I just thought, all right, yeah, I bet that's what he did. And he went off and then came back as completely different. But looking certainly at the order that he released his singles, that isn't the case. He would do a slow one, then he'd do a rock and roll number and then he'd do something that was almost a bit country or whatever which again just underlines i guess how important elvis is the artist that i can think of really that compares to elvis in the importance of being you know a formula for pop music for the future is the beatles they're the only ones who move the furniture around within music as much as elvis did i guess i am just talking about elvis and i realize that i've not spoken about the song at all i think the song is such a standard it kind of defies being reviewed. I didn't even know if I owned it. Turned out I do own it. Not only do I own it, I carry it with me. And there aren't many artists who I would just drag and drop tunes into, you know, a file folder. Everyone else, I go, you know, really with the exception of the Beatles, everyone else I go, yeah, don't need that. Yeah, need that. Don't need that. Elvis and the Beatles, get in there. I'll just have everything that I've got with me because you never know. I actually can't think of a circumstance where I would play this out, but it is a brilliant, brilliant tune. I can only describe it as a masterpiece. Sonically, it sounds amazing. This was 1962 and it sounds that well. And I don't think it's overwrought or anything like that. I just really think it's great. It's really interesting that you talk about the title of it because it didn't have the eye and it was just can't help falling in love. You didn't realise what it was. When UB40 covered it and it went to number one, they actually did change the title. Their version is called I Can't Help in brackets falling in love with you. So they gave it the full line, essentially, as the title. They actually changed the title of it. Again, it is one of the few songs that has been multiple top five hits for different artists. I can't think of it other than kind of the unchained melodies of this world, Spirit in the Sky. I think I can't think of any song that's had that many different big hits. So point of that, I suppose, is that it must be a great song. You don't get four or five different top five hits with a song unless it's fantastic. I mean, it's brilliant. I don't super love the production on it. It's got a sort of up and down arpeggio kind of sound to it, which isn't very imaginative in my view. But I don't think that matters when the melody and the performance of it is so great. What I love about it, and this is one of these circular things that keeps happening on this show, is that the guys who wrote this, Hugo Peretti, Luigi Creatore, great name, Italian cousins who wrote it, also wrote the English lyrics to the song that we'll be talking about in the 1980s. 
So they are also responsible for the lyrics of that song, which is uh, one of those weird things that comes around from time to time. I also thought it just listening to this the other day that it, there's a bit of it doesn't rhyme. I don't know whether you've noticed that, which is the should I stay it would be a sin. I can't help falling in love with you, which is a bit weird because it was originally written as I can't help falling in love with him. It was originally supposed to be a female vocal and obviously the hymn rhymes with the sin and it would have made more, well, it would have rhymed. It would have made a little bit more sense and obviously was the lyrics were changed when Elvis came along. Yeah, I'm with Trevor really. It's, it's just an absolute classic. I probably heard it first, like a lot of these songs that we've come across through the UB40 version, probably. I like that version as well. I think that's when UB40 stopped being a reggae band and basically became a kind of Simply Red-esque adult pop band, essentially, at that point. But no, it's great. Not my favourite Elvis, but an absolute classic. It's interesting, Trevor, what you said about how you felt that Elvis continued to reinvent himself in some ways and he made a comparison with Bowie and Madonna. I have to say, I don't see it like that. I get the feeling that Elvis basically did what he was told to do by Colonel Tom Parker. And I think he was manipulated more than was good for him artistically and eventually, you know, in terms of his own personal welfare. There is this conventional wisdom that after Elvis left the army, he lost his edge and became a you know a cheesy mainstream family entertainer. Now that may be true, but in terms of UK chart success, this is slap bang in the middle of his most successful period of hit making. So he left the army March 5th, 1960. And over the next three years, he had 14 hit singles. Of those 14, 10 of them went to number one. Three more of them was top five. Only one of them missed the top 10. Then we get to July 1963, just before the Beatles released She Loves You and started to go properly stratospheric. At that point, his chart positions dropped off dramatically. The rest of the 60s, until his comeback in the summer of 69 with a TV comeback special. But during the next six years, he only had one more number one. That was Crying in the Chapel and no other top five hits. So this is his commercial golden age, even if it may not always be his artistic golden age. Now, I came to this song, again, like Nick, not via Elvis's version, but I came to it via the Andy Williams version. My dad had an eight-track cartridge player in the car and on the school run and on family trips, he would frequently play the eight-track cartridge of Andy Williams' greatest hits. So I have heard that literally dozens of times. And then I also remember when the Stylistics version was a hit in the mid-70s. Both of those versions are quite sprightly. So I had Can't Help Falling in Love as quite a sprightly track. I kind of linked it with Can't Take My Eyes Off You, having first heard the Andy Williams versions of both. There have also been versions of Plaisir d'Amour recorded. There's been Mariam Faithful has done one, The Seekers, Joan Baez, Nana Mascouri. They tend to have a mix of French and English in the lyrics, not the Elvis version of the English lyrics. And some of them are lovely. The Joan Baez and Mariam Faithful versions really are very nice indeed. So this was the first version of the song, unless you count the French folk song. But actually... Unlike you two, I think this is probably my least favourite version, although I will say the UB40 version does come close. I get that a lot of people find it touching and sincere. I know it is one of the all-time first dance at a wedding classics, 
But personally, I just find it rather gloopy and smarmy. It's got those bog-standard arpeggiated piano triplets, which you just get over and over and over again. You've got the Georgian airs crooning away in the background. The one nice touch, I think, is those few little subtle twangs of kind of Hawaiian guitar. They're quite nice. I'll give it that. I don't know if you've watched the clip from Blue Hawaii, where Elvis performs a song on Blue Hawaii, but it's quite a hoot. He's ostensibly singing this song to an elderly lady. He's just given her a musical box. And the elderly lady, she spends the entire performance clip with this kind of frozen look of delight on her face. It looks really frozen. There were supposed to be multiple takes. It's like, sit there, look delighted for two and a half minutes. However, there's a subplot. There is also an attractive younger woman in the shot. And while ostensibly singing the song to the nice elderly lady with the musical box, Elvis keeps shooting her little sort of surreptitious glances. Now, this elderly lady is planted on this massive, oversized wicker chair, unbeknownst to her, behind the back of the wicker chair. I think actually on the line, take my hand, Elvis and the attractive younger woman are secretly holding hands behind the chair. Yeah, all the time, Elvis is seeing it as if he can't help falling in love with a nice old lady. That makes his whole delivery looks smarmy and insincere. And I'm afraid that backs up what I personally feel about the smarminess of the song. It also has the distinction of being the very last song that Elvis Presley ever performed live. This was in June 1977. There is audio of this performance on YouTube. There is also video of a performance from just a week or so earlier. Oh my God. I'm not going to put them on the playlist. They both present grim evidence of his decline. His voice is shot to bits. Speech is slurred. He's clearly strung out on God knows what. He's barely able to function, but he's still performing to this adoring crowd who seem completely oblivious to what they are actually watching, which is kind of sad. I'm glad you two like it, and I'm sure a lot of people will agree with you, but it's not for me, sorry. If you want a sprightly version of it, you should listen to the A-teens version of it that was on the soundtrack to the Disney movie Lilo and Stitch, which is basically the result of an experiment. Is this, What would have happened if you'd given S Club 7 a whiter shade of pale? Uh, it's basically that. Is it up there with Alvin and the Chipmunks doing Couch of the County? Yes. I mean, essentially, they've gone Blue Hawaii, Lilo and Stitch is set in Hawaii. Let's do a jaunty kids version of it. Honest to God, it makes steps look like um, Mozart. Queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to clarify, I did past tense think that Elvis kept reinventing himself. And when I've done my sketchy little bit of research and seen the order that he released all these songs that I'm familiar with, it turns out that he didn't reinvent himself. I thought that kind of because I thought he established that as a pop thing to do and loads of people have done that since. You know, pop stars are still doing that to this day. Actually, he didn't reinvent himself because he just chucked everything, all the music that he was doing, managed and manipulated by the Colonel. But, you know, I mean, I thought he had a rock and roll period. Then he had a sort of glitzy period. Then he had a crooner period. Clearly didn't. His songs went all over the place, didn't they? That was what I meant. Sorry. I think his initial impact was kind of instinctive. He had a talent that even he didn't fully understand. It was just a natural force that emanated from him 
that worked. I think if he ever did consciously reinvent himself, you could possibly give him credit for that late 60s comeback TV special. I suspect he'd reached a point where he said to Colonel Tom, I can't keep doing these increasingly appalling movies anymore. Let me get back to doing what I'm good at. Put me in some leathers and get me singing rock and roll. Nick will know this. The backing group, the Jordanaires, are they the only pop backing group named after a successful pair of trainers? Uh, no, I think the trainers were named after them. I kind of thought that as well. Yeah, I think they, <laughs> I think they were Air Jordanaires to start with, I think, but it, they couldn't fit it on the heel. <laughs> Let us move on to... The 70s! With Son of My Father by Chicory Tip. This was the first of three top 20 hits that Chicory Tip had in 1972 and 1973, and it was their only number one. Spent three weeks there, and it was replaced by Nielsen's Without You. It was written by Giorgio Moroder and Pete Bullot, who were both responsible for Donna Summer's long run of hits later on in the 70s. It was originally recorded in German by Michael Holm. And at that point, it was called Nachts scheint die Sonne, which means the sun shines at night. Then it was released as a solo single by Giorgio Moroder himself. And Pete Blot provided the rather strange English translation of Michael Holm's words. It was also the first UK number one ever to feature a synthesizer. Chicory Tip, they formed in 1967, they split up in 1975, but there is a reformed lineup still touring today, featuring two of the original members. I could sit here for hours about this, honestly. I've been in, oh, on all sorts of rabbit holes on this one. Slippery shit, as I believe they were called back in the day by people who didn't like them very much, so I'm reliably assured. So in 1972, it must have sounded like aliens were coming with that synthesizer bass intro and then the bit that goes like that. Honestly, must have sounded like the most amazingly futuristic thing in the world. We talk about how you first come to a song. So I first came to this song, like a lot of people did probably, on the football terraces because every club has a chant that is some version of the chorus of Son of My Father, I think. Oh, Teddy, 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 Teddy Sheringham is one that immediately springs to mind. But every club has one. Most people will know this song without realising they know it because they've sung their favourite footballer's name every Saturday afternoon for their life to the tune. Actually, of all the versions of this, I think this is the weediest of them all. I think the Giorgio Moroder version is better. I think the original German version is also better. So I think this is actually the least convincing version of this song of the three that were round about at the same time. What I did find interesting about it was, so these days, every female pop star in the world releases an empowering song about independence and all this sort of thing. This is a song about a fella forging his own identity and coming out of the shadow of his parents and sort of thing, which actually, I couldn't think of another example of a song sung by a man that had that sentiment of somebody essentially throwing off the shackles of doing what their parents wanted and being branded like a plastic bag or whatever he says and then coming to sort of have independent thought of their own so actually lyrically i thought that was quite interesting i mean the lyrics are a bit odd in places but actually the sentiment of it i thought was actually really interesting and i couldn't think of another empowering song from a male perspective uh, especially not in the early 70s so 
I think it has its merits. I would put it a little bit in the same category as the Edison Lighthouse one as a sort of one-off chirpy pop song. Do come back to me when you have finished discussing this because I have an absolute treat for you. (laughs) Yeah, I have also made a comparison between this and the Edison Lighthouse track in that both of them are absolutely hardwired into my musical DNA to the extent that, once again, I just can't imagine what this would sound like to someone who wasn't around when it was a hit. I absolutely adored it at the time. I still love it now. And yet... Until it came up in the draw, I, and I think probably along with every other person that was around at the time, had no idea what the actual lyrics were in the chorus. I kind of settled for son of a father, mooling I was drooling I was free from harm, which I obviously knew wasn't right, but it's best I could come up with. However, astonishingly, it turns out that Chicory Tip didn't know how the line went either. Right. What happened was this. In November 1971, they released their fourth consecutive flop single, I Love Onions. Can't think why that flopped. Not long after the release of I Love Onions, one of their production team heard the Giorgio Moroder version of Son of My Father. It was due for UK release in January 1972. He immediately realised the song had hit potential. So he called a halt to all further promotion of I Love Onions. God, there must have been a patch schedule to clear there. And he got the band back in the studio as quickly as he could, actually on Christmas Eve 1971. And they were tasked with recording a rival cover version, and they managed to release it on exactly the same day as Giorgio Moroder's version, January the 14th, 1972. Now, here's the thing. They were all in such a rush to record the song that they didn't have time to send off the actual lyrics or to check them. So lead singer Peter Hewson took them directly from what he could hear on the Moroder record, Now, most of the time, he got them right, but a couple of times, he didn't. So, in the first verse, where Moroder sings, Be just like your dad, lad, follow in the same tradition, Peter Hewson sings, Be just like your dabbling father when it seems tradition, which doesn't even make grammatical sense. And then, in the chorus, the moolin' I was drooling bit, Moroder actually sings, Son of my father, moulded I was folded, I was preform packed. Whereas Houston sings, moulded I was folded, I was free from draft. Which again, is total nonsense. I checked this and rechecked this and checked this over. I have even watched Houston's lips on multiple performance videos. And yeah, it's right. That's why you get two versions on lyric sites. The weird thing is, Houston actually gets the next line right, even though that doesn't make any sense either. Commanded I was branded and the plastic vac, that's V-A-C apostrophe, whatever a vac is. It's like a vacuum sealed package, I would imagine. Just a word about the synthesizer, the Moog synthesizer. This was not played by a member of Chicory Tip. This was played by a guy called Chris Thomas. Now, he went on to be an extremely successful record producer. He mixed Dark Side of the Moon for Pink Floyd. He produced Nevermind the Bollocks for the Sex Pistols. Later, he produced massive classic hits like The Pretenders, Brass in Pocket, Elton John, I'm Still Standing, In Excess, Need You Tonight, and Pulp Common People. And he also produced one of the other singles in this week's episode. There are so many connections here. So if I didn't know that I owned Elvis, which I didn't, 
I definitely did know that I owned this song, but I thought it was on what is a really brilliant compilation album called The Best One Hit Wonders in the World. It's actually on another album, which is not quite as brilliant, Keith Chegwin's album, The Worst Album on the Planet. Now, it is fair to say that there's actually quite a lot of crossover between tracks that are on the best one-hit wonders in the world and Keith Chegwin's worst album in the world, because, hey, I never mentioned this, art is, after all, subjective. I've got no recollection of hearing this tune before the 90s, quite possibly before I got that compilation CD. So I don't know what it sounded like amongst the contemporary sound of the time. But I, I don't think there's really anything wrong with this for me. It might be a bit too far down the line of the quirky and twee. And I, I still think you can compare it to last episode's Love Grows, Where My Rosary Goes. And that one is on the best one-hit wonders in the world. I can see why at the time and ever since some people would have problems with that weird, herbly... I mean, it sounds like fighting in a jacuzzi, really, that bass line. But... I still wouldn't put this on the worst album in the planet. Lyrically, it's a story of growth. I think that's really enjoyable. You know, it's a guy going, yeah, that was what you wanted me to be. And now I'm moving on. Uh, and I really, really like that. It's it's not a protest as such to the fact that his parents wanted him to do this. It's just going, that's not what I'm going to do. If you want the flip side to that argument, listen to Eyeless by Slipknot, who claim in that to be their father's son, are a lot more angry about the fact that they're their father's son. And I um, I, I like this tune. I, I liked it more after I read the lyrics because I did find it empowering uh, and positive. Yeah, it's a bit twee, it's a bit cheesy, it's dated as hell, but I think this is perfectly fine. Just want to come back to you there. I've got an observation about the rhythm of Son of My Father in that it kind of predates the glam rock rhythm that was just around the corner in that it's what used to be called a shuffle rhythm. And that actually got revived in the mid 2000s, the style of dance music called shuffle. And the shuffle rhythm is basically, it is like my onding a ronding a bass line. A shuffle rhythm goes onka chonka ronka chonka over and over again. So this just sneaked in ahead of Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 2 that hadn't yet entered the chart. And then we got the sweet blockbuster, David Bowie, Gene Genie, and all of that. So it was accidentally kind of glam. Come on, Nick, astonish us. Right, this took me hours. So strap in as I give you the A to Z tour through vegetables in pop. Wow. So inspired by Chicory Tip, the tip of a chicory, which is a vegetable, I can give you every vegetable that's hit the top 40. So the biggest one, probably the black-eyed peas. You've also got the Smashing Pumpkins and Prefab Sprout had a monicum of success. Then, in no particular order, Carrot Rope by Pavement, 1999, Funky Moped by Jasper Carrot, 1975, The Onion Song, by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, 1969. Mr Bean and Iron Maiden, I Want to Be Elected, 1992. Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, 1979. Pumpkin by Tricky, 1995. Gathering the Mushrooms by Benny Hill, 1961. <laughs> uh, the Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead by the Crash Test Dummies, 1995. The Big Bean by Pig Bag. 1982, Swede Mason's MasterChef Synesthesia, which I think is that buttery biscuit base meme, reached the top 40 in 2011. Charlie Big Potato by Skunk and Nancy. 
Lemon Pepper Freestyle by Drake, 2021. Pepper Box by The Peppers, 1974. Thank You Baked Potato by Matt Lucas, 2020. Pork and Beans by Weezer, 2008. Do we count popcorn? Because it sort of is corn, isn't it? So popcorn, obviously, hot butter and the crazy frog, depending on your preference. Salt and pepper-ish off of the pepper. And Pumpkin Soup by Kate Nash, 2007. That is your 70-year chart journey through all the vegetables. If only Chicory Tip hadn't redacted their I Like Onions song, they could have been in that twice. Yeah, they absolutely could. I couldn't find anything with cauliflower, broccoli, leek, asparagus, artichokes, nothing. That must have taken you hours. I salute your dedication. I'm glad you mentioned popcorn hot butter, though, because that was the other breakthrough synthesizer hit of 1972 at son of my father and popcorn they kind of started synth pop in a strange sort of way and i think when you think of hot butter popcorn that still amazes me that that came out in 1972 whereas you can believe that this came out in 1972 even though it's advanced with the synths and stuff like that the manner in which they're used whereas hot butter you're kind of going oh no that does sound like it's from the future even now, you know, a slightly crap future, but, you know, whereas the Chikuri Tip one, I guess at the time, even though it sounded futuristic and crazy, did it also instantly sound dated? I kind of like the shonkiness of it, actually, because the, the early 70s were a kind of shonky period. You couldn't really have sort of super slick glossy stuff. I think that's kind of why I prefer it over Giorgio Moroder's version. The Giorgio Moroder version is just a bit more polished. He's worked a bit harder on that synth stuff. Son of my father, it was Christmas Eve. They got to get it in the can, so they did whatever, quickly and cheaply. And that, that makes it work for me. Shall we progress? Let's move on to... The 80s! Represented by Tight Fit, with their version of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. This was the second of three top ten hits that an act known as Tight Fit had in 1981. And 1982, it was their only number one, spent three weeks at number one, and it was replaced by the Gumbay Dance Band with Seven Tears. <clears throat> now, the first type fit hit was a Stars on 45 cash-in style medley of 60s hits called Back to the 60s. And it featured none of the members who performed on the Lion Sleeps Tonight. This new lineup was a trio, Steve Grant, Denise Gingle and Julie Harris. Although it should be said that Steve Grant didn't actually sing on the recording. His vocals were sung by a guy called Roy Ward, who formerly had a hit in the 70s with a group called City Boy. Side note, in 1991, Denise Gingle married Pete Waterman. Right. History of the Lion Sleeps Tonight. It was originally written and recorded in 1939 by Solomon Linder, who was a South African singer, and he sung it in the Zulu language. At that stage, it had the title Mbube. This became a popular song internationally in the 1950s, by which time it was known as Wimaway. A 1952 version by The Weavers became a US top 10 hit. A 1961 version by Carl Denver reached number four in the UK. Now, much like Son of My Father, this was a mishearing of the original Zulu word, Uyimbabe, which means you are a lion. Uyimbabe was misheard as Wimaway, and Wimaway stuck. It was adapted 
into English as the Lion Sleeps Tonight in 1961. And that's when a doo-wop version by the Tokens became a US number one and a number 11 hit in the UK. Another connection for you, the Tokens recorded the original version of He's in Town, which we talked about in episode three when it was a hit for the Rockin' Berries. Finally, The Lion Sleeps Tonight also inspired R.E.M.'s 1993 hit The Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight, and they added a cover of The Lion Sleeps Tonight to its B-side for good measure. Ladies and gentlemen of the class of which decade is Tops for Pops, if I had to come up with a paradox that points to why I love pop music, this song would be it. It's absolutely preposterous. It's nonsense. It's easy it's far far too cheesy and i love it there's some horrible cringy stuff that hasn't aged well in the video and in the song in general but you know sometimes for me pop songs and videos don't need to advance us culturally or have out something profound sometimes they just need to give us three and a half minutes of good old-fashioned daft put this on at eight o'clock and i'd laugh at you and not in a good way Put it on five pints later and I'd be dancing to this. Now, I have to acknowledge the backstory of how the original writer of this was absolutely done over. I want to stop short of saying by the racist music industry, but certainly by South Africa, who were obviously horrifically racist at the time. It's eye-opening and it's eye-watering. And it's just horrible, which is not nice to talk about anyway it's really not nice to talk about in the context of this song but it needs acknowledging but it did happen a long time before the tight fit version and i just don't think realistically you can hold tight fit remotely responsible for that so more cheerfully i would like to note the filter sweep production technique that's used on this it's a, a sweep that's recently well, sort of within the last 20 years recently, uh, being available on DJ mixers. And you can create it by putting the same track played over the top of itself at more or less exactly the same time. And it's used really, really subtly. This isn't a subtle song. And yet they've just got this little... I know it's transposing, and I don't think that's what it is, but I don't know what term... I, I actually did some research, shock horror... And I couldn't find out what it's called, but it's an almost airplane whooshing effect. But it's really subtly used in what isn't a subtle song. You kind of expect this that level of production. Like in an artist, like, yes, they would put in something weird and you know, possibly even unnecessary in it. But, you know, for tight fit to use it, I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's a cheesy song, but it's done the right way with clearly clever stuff but no attempt to sound clever. I think it's a really very, very good pop song. Yeah, I, was, uh, I think that it didn't end before the tight fit version because Disney Corporation also ended up in litigation with uh, Solomon Linda's estate for its use in The Lion King. They think sort of conservatively earned about $15 million just from its appearance in The Lion King, that very little of that, I think, went to the writer's estate and uh, that ended up in court also. I think I broadly agree. It's rubbish, right? It's absolute rubbish. But God, once you've heard it once, that is it forever. It's sort of one of those songs that everybody knows. Almost like a nursery rhyme, isn't it? Kids, grannies, everybody in between knows The Lion Sleeps Tonight. The original version is great. It does lend itself really well to a kind of late 50s doo-woppy style. 
I think just with the whim away, the whim away actually does lend itself really well to that style and that period. I actually don't mind tight fit. I think Fantasy Island is a great pop record, which was their other hit after that. I think it's a great song. It might be one of those songs that's divisive, I think, in the sense that I think some people will think, God, it's preposterous and hate it for that reason. I sit on Trev's side of the fence where I think it's preposterous, but I quite happily listen to it. It's not the sort of thing you play every day in the car, is it? But when it comes on, you know, you can't help but get carried away by the whim-away, whim-aways, can you? Well, I can, but more of that in a minute. Okay. Here comes misery guts. (laughs) (laughs) I hate fun. Yeah, here comes Mr. NME Reezer. Right. First off, number ones are weird, right? A lot of the time, and I think this is particularly true in the 70s, 80s and 90s, they don't really represent what else was going on in the charts. If we'd restricted this podcast just to number one records, we wouldn't really have given you such a full picture of everything that was happening in each decade. Cowder the County was a good example of that last time, and I think that Tight Fit are another example this time. Okay, come with me back to March 1982. We are at the height of what some sections of the music press dubbed new pop. That's clever, inventive, sometimes subtly subversive hit singles, many of them made by people with a background in post-punk experimentalism who are graduated from the John Peel show to Top of the Pops. I'll give you some examples from the top 20 this week. Soft Cell, Say Hello, Wave Goodbye. Depeche Mode, See You. OMD, Made of Orleans. Poison Arrow by ABC. Go Wild in the Country, Bow Wow Wow. Senses Working Overtime by XTC. And we've also got The Jam, Haircut 100, Fun Boy 3, The Stranglers, Adam and the Ants and Madness, all in the top 20, all of them receiving critical plaudits as well as commercial sales, But what do we have at number one? A total cheese fest played by session musicians, performed in a plastic jungle by two bimbos and a himbo, if I may be so bold, with no artistic cachet whatsoever. That video alone is cultural appropriation, a go-go. I will say, in agreement with Nick, Fantasy Island, the follow-up, much more like it. That is almost new pop, if you extend new pop to include some of the dollar and bucks fizz stuff that was coming out at the time. Please also note, this is the third record in a row to have originated from a foreign language original. We had Plaisir d'Amour, we had Nacht Scheint Dishonor, and now we've got Umbube. And just as Elvis Presley's version of Cut Up Falling in Love is my least favourite version of that song, so Tights Fit's version is my least favourite version of Umbube or Wibbleway, or indeed The Lion Sleeps Tonight. I've heard loads of oceans over the years. Great one by Nancy Griffith, by the way. It's gone from a Zulu chant to an American folk standard to this. It's well made, I grant you. Trev makes some very valid points about the productions. These are session men who absolutely know what they're doing. But it's also very, very silly in an era where most chart pop was a lot more interesting, I would submit. Just going back to what I was saying earlier. So this is the one that the guys who wrote Can't Help Falling in Love, the Elvis song, wrote the English lyrics to The Lion Sleeps Tonight, just to square that circle. And also it does lose a point for it being actually factually quite inaccurate because lions don't live in the jungle. They live on savannas and things. They don't actually live in the jungle. Oh, my God, this is like Kilimanjaro rising above the Serengeti, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Right. Shall we tackle? The 90s. 
This is Stay by Shakespeare's Sister. It was the second of three top 10 hits for Shakespeare's Sister. Altogether, they had six top 40 hits between 1989 and 1996. This was their only number one. It spent eight weeks at the top and it was replaced by Wright Said Fred with Deeply Dippy. Shakespeare's Sister were a duo. They consisted of Siobhan Fahey, formerly of Bananarama, and Marcella Detroit, who previously worked with Eric Clapton. They co-wrote Stay with Dave Stewart of the Arrhythmics, who was married to Siobhan Fahey at the time. It was co-produced by Alan Mulder and Chris Thomas. Remember him? He played the synth part on Son of My Father by Chicory Tip. The following year, 1993, poor old Marcella Detroit was sacked from the group by Siobhan Fahey, and she only discovered this when Siobhan won an Ivan Novello Award and wished her all the best for the future in her acceptance speech. They didn't speak to each other for 25 years after that. Siobhan carried on Shakespeare's sister basically as a solo act for a few more years. But then in 2019, they reunited for a UK tour, did some interviews together on various breakfast TV sofas, and they released a few new songs to boot. For the second week running, we've been faced with a boring po-face 90s song that I have absolutely nothing to say about it. So this is going to be very short. I was playing it the other day and Mrs P walked past and said, I don't think I've heard this since it came out, which actually is a pretty fair assessment. I'm not sure I've heard it since it came out either. It doesn't seem to get any radio play. I mean, why would you play it on the radio? God, everybody just fall asleep. Of all the Shakespeare sister songs that I know, this is my least favourite. I'd much rather listen to Your History or Turn the Radio On or one of the other ones. I know that French and Saunders sort of famously parried this, didn't they, where they came in as like a foghorn when the Siobhan Fay bit comes in. But actually, to me, the song only really gets going at that point. Uh, until then, it's quite drippy. I think one of the reasons that Siobhan Fay sacked her was that the record company forced them to release this and she didn't think it was particularly representative of the rest of their work because she didn't have the lead vocal on it. So I don't think she was a very nice person, Siobhan Fay, in the early 90s, I'll be honest. Other opinions are available. Uh, the most interesting thing I could say about it is that there's only three examples of Shakespeare ever appearing in the charts. It's Shakespeare's sister, the band, Shakespeare's sister, the song by the Smiths, and one true voice who were second to Girls Aloud in the original pop stars, The Rivals, I think. Their follow-up single to their brilliant debut single, Sacred Trust, was Shakespeare's Way With Words, which reached number 10 in 2003. And that is all of the Shakespeare's in the history of the charts. So I feel a bit about this as I feel about the Sinead O'Connor one in that it didn't move me then, it doesn't move me now. I find it quite tedious. If, it, if I never heard it again, I wouldn't miss it. Goths are weird, aren't they? Now, I feel pretty comfortable saying that goths are weird because I've got really strong goth credentials. I played football for Real Gothic FC at the Whitby Goth Weekend several times. Once I was on the pitch when they actually won against the Whitby Town eleven. Granted, I was on the pitch when they got soundly thrashed uh, the other five times, but you know, that's fine. So I think I could say that goths are weird. And one of the things about goths that I think is most weird is that most people think that gothic music is bands like Cradle of Filth and Garotted. And uh, now plenty of goths do like Cradle of Filth. I have no real idea how they feel either way about Garotted. But goth music is actually a weird type of thing to try and put your finger on if indeed there is goth music at all. And a lot of the time, goths actually like 
wonderful synthy emotional pop music that I kind of think this falls into. I've loads of goth friends online and I see them talking about this song quite a lot. So whether or not you could call this goth, I don't know. I've been to a few goth nights and they seem to mainly just play 80s music. Uh, I'm pretty sure I heard one goth night playing Culture Club, which I mean, that's as far away as what I would think goth music is uh, as I can get. But nevertheless, I think this does sort of fall within the um, aspect of goth somewhere. It's somewhere on the goth spectrum, should we say. Now, I've absolutely no idea what this song is about. And I thought I'd watch the video to try and clear it up. And I've now got absolutely even less idea what this song is about. I think the video does have a performance by, so it's the second vocal, which is Siobhan then, that I think that might have influenced Danny Filth out of Quaid Lafilth's stage persona, the way she <laughs> is all jerky like a tree. That's a lot of parallels to be drawn there. But yeah, uh, watching the video did not clear up what this song's about whatsoever. But I have no idea what the song The Lion Sleeps Tonight is about. And it didn't stop me liking that. And whilst obviously uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight is a party banger, this has got a lot of things to it that I like. It's lush and it's sparkly and it's weird. And I think it's the weird that makes me like it because I do think it starts off very, very similar to the Sinead O'Connor song that we covered last time. And that, for me, I know it wiped everything else out in the voting, didn't it? But for me, it was just, nah, it left me kind of going, nah. This doesn't leave me in the mare zone at all because it's got the dark, weird to it. I don't understand it, but I don't expect to understand everything. I think it's it's a much more interesting song. I can't say I'm in love with it, but I do think it is well worth a listen. It's the kind of song I imagine in about a year and a half, I'll be in a pub and, and I'll see a jukebox and go, oh, do you know what? I might give that a go. It's odd. What are they on about? I don't know. What movement is it? What, 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 what? It leaves me with more questions than answers, but sometimes that's okay. Uh, and yeah, I enjoy this. I think I've got a connection from Culture Club to Goth. It's a tenuous one. Before they settled on the name Culture Club, they were going to call themselves the Sex Gang Children. And when they didn't call themselves the Sex Gang Children, one of the very original UK goth bands took that very name. It is a tenuous link. That is a band name that has not aged well, isn't it? The Sex Gang Children. When Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark were choosing their name, Andy McCluskey's bedroom wall was just full. He'd scribbled on it, you know, he'd just drawn all over it and all this sort of thing. And they decided to pick a band name off something he'd written on his bedroom wall. And it was going to be Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark or Margaret Thatcher's Afterbirth. <gasps> um, that was the two that they came down to i'm pretty sure in my heavy metal and punk promotional days i booked and featured margaret thatcher's afterbirth if not that certainly a band whose name was very very close Goodness to it me. interesting what you said nick about people have never heard shakespeare's sister stay since it dropped out the charts in 1992 i can only think of one revival and that's when Cher Lloyd performed it on the x factor oh, yeah. and we got the giggles because it was this very sort of trembly over emotional performance and she shook so much i said to my partner she looks like mrs overall off acorn antiques she did <laughs> she did i'll put it on the playlist this has the distinction of being the first of four number ones at least that i can remember that i've seen performed live while they were actually at number one this was the first. The other ones I can remember are Beetlebum by Blur, 
Mercy by Duffy and Waiting All Night by Rudimental and Ella Eyre. There may have been others. I'm pretty certain there weren't. I think it's a great record, but it spent way too long at number one. By the eighth week of watching this at the end of Top of the Pops, I've gone from, oh, wow, this is interesting and different to, oh, God, not again. And that feeling has never quite left me. I'm still kind of sick of it even now, even though I haven't heard it in all this time. As a song, it does trace an extraordinary path. And you can see some of this in the video. So in the first verse, Marcello Detroit is standing over an unconscious and bedbound man. And she seems to be pleading with him to return to life. But then in the second verse, things start to take a more sinister turn. There's that line, when your pride is on the floor, I'll make you beg for more. And that's a strange thing to sing if you're trying to heal a dying man. It's more like Kathy Bates in Misery with James Calm lying flat out. And then in comes Siobhan in full-on ooky-spooky Daughter of Darkness mode. And things get a lot more threatening if you look at it one way or comical if you look at it another way. The video casts her as a figure from the underworld trying to smash the man away. The two women fight. The man comes back to life. And then Siobhan does this wonderful little eye roll before disappearing. But without the video, could Siobhan instead be the evil voice inside Marcella's head if we assume that there's some kind of kidnapper hostage situation going on? It's not completely clear cut. I can understand why Trev couldn't work out what it's all about. I think that's one of the strengths of the song. But I still can't shake that feeling of, oh, God, have I got to listen to this one more time? That is my problem. It's based on the 1953 film Cat Women on the Moon, apparently. It's inspired by that. So it's a love story, but not on Earth with beautiful cat women. Good knowledge. Right. Here come... The Naughties! Represented by Westlife with World of Our Own. Now, like Elvis Presley before them, this was also Westlife's 10th number one. But unlike Elvis Presley, it was their 10th number one from just 11 singles released thus far. Their consecutive streak of chart toppers was only broken by What Makes a Man that had to settle for number two. They still had four more number ones ahead of them. And altogether, they had 25 top 10 hits between 1999 and 2010. Now, Elvis may have been the first act to score 10 number ones, but this single made Westlife the fastest act to score 10 number ones in the UK singles charts. They achieved it in just 149 weeks, and that smashed the record previously held by the Beatles, who took 165 weeks. So World of Our Own entered the charts at number one, stayed there for just one week, and it was replaced by Will Young's Anything Is Possible and Evergreen Double A Cider. It was co-written by four people, and I feel I need to introduce you to the songwriters. First off, we have Steve Mack. Now, Steve Mack, he's written or co-written dozens and dozens of other singles for acts such as our old friends Union J, Calvin Harris and The Saturdays. And he's written, or he's co-written, Shape of You and Shivers with Ed Sheeran massively prolific guy then there's wayne hector he's also co-written loads of hits he's done Nicki minaj starships he's done the wanted glad you came and he did best song ever for one direction and then there is dennis morgan when he started out as a u.s country music songwriter before forming a songwriting partnership with world of our own's fourth co-author step forward none other than simon climey of climey fisher Dennis Morgan and Simon Climey, they co-wrote 
the greatest single of the 1980s, Love Changes Everything by Clive Fisher. And they also co-wrote I Knew You Were Waiting For Me by Aretha Franklin and George Michael. This is Westlife's fifth most streamed song on Spotify, and it's had over 94 million streams. Whenever I hear about Westlife, I'm baffled and astounded and hearing you list the absolute avalanche of hits and all their stats. I'm constantly amazed. The Saturdays, a manufactured band we've dealt with in the past, are huge, and none of us can really work out why. Like, we struggle with remembering songs that they've done. Now, Westlife are way more organic than the Saturdays, but they are a band who I don't know much about, and they're absolutely enormous. And, you know, so sometimes people ask me for Westlife, and I'm like, oh, what Westlife songs were that? So I've done, in the due diligence of being a DJ, I've got three Westlife songs now there's only really one that I think is particularly playable this is one of the others that I carry with me and it's just about playable but I can't really see it ever happening I think I may have played it at a private party I did where someone wanted me for a birthday but the rest of the night wasn't Westlife because I would struggle with doing a night of Westlife is what I'm saying um so I, I don't know a lot of their tunes but unlike the Saturdays where I just can't work out why they're big I can see why Westlife is big. It really isn't for me, but it's catchy and it's, you know, it's well-made, well-written and all that kind of stuff. And for people who like their bands sat on stools until the key change, I get it. Earlier in the season, we reviewed a Girls Aloud song where they jumped up in front of a cinema screen. And I said that people would only be all right with you jumping up in front of a cinema screen if your girls allowed. In this video, Westlife, some police women are going to arrest Westlife and instead Westlife just get off with them. And I would strongly suggest that that is not how to act if you are getting arrested unless you're Westlife. Sometimes in pop videos, pop stars do things that you shouldn't try if you are a mortal person. Girls Aloud can jump up on stage in front of a cinema screen and people will cheer them and whistle and carry on. Uh, and, you know, possibly Westlife, in the event of them ever getting arrested, could just get off with the people that are doing the arresting. But I just don't think, dear listener, you should do that. In many ways, I think this is the reason I'm here for moments like this because <laughs> it would be very easy to see how the listening populace might go in slightly two-footed on this um piece of <laughs> early 2000s pop it does bear repeating exactly what mike says only elvis and the beatles have had more number one records in the uk than westlife they have had more number one hits than elton john ed sheeran the rolling stones abba all of those people. So they are phenomenally successful. 25 consecutive top 10 hits over a decade. This was a little bit unlike them. All but one of their previous number ones had been the sort of ballads with which you associate them. There was only really Uptown Girl that was a kind of upbeat one before this came along. Immediately, you said last week, Mike, immediately last week where you said, right, 2000, we're going to do Westlife World of Our Own. I said, I love this song. I absolutely, I think it's a great little semi-Motown-esque pop banger from the early 2000s. I own three Westlife albums that I bought contemporaneously with their success, including their greatest hits collection, but two of their actual albums with stuff on. And they're great. If you like that sort of thing, you know, they were more successful than take that. You know, if you're not into boy bands and you're not into that sort of pop music, that's fine. They're probably your worst nightmare. 
if you don't like Louis Walsh, they're probably your worst nightmare. But what they did, they did impeccably, spectacularly well for a long time. And I think this is great. I think it's catchy. I like some of the ballads. I like this. I don't like absolutely everything that they've done. Uh, some of their ballads are a little bit drippy. Let's not beat about the bush. They're not my favourite band, but I will sit here and stick up for them because they were incredibly successful, did what they did really well. And I actually really like this. I think as a piece of early 2000s chart pop, I think it's perfectly great. Yeah, in some ways, for me, the most interesting thing about Westlife is actually the stats. Yeah, only two acts have had more UK number ones. Elvis, 21. Beatles were 17. That leaves Westlife currently tied at third position with Cliff Richards. They've both had 14. And you do wonder whether either of them will ever have a number one. I suspect a posthumous Cliff hit or two, maybe, on the cards. Just behind them, with 13 number ones, we've got Madonna and Ed Sheeran in a tied position. So it's got to be only a matter of time before Ed Sheeran knocks Westlife into fourth equal place. I've seen this one perform live as well at Nottingham Arena in 2008. It was the second song in their set that night because I still have the review to hand. I took a friend along as my plus one who was an actual Westlife fan. Yes, they do exist. Nick is living proof of that. I remember asking him why he liked them, apart from the obvious reason that he fancied the pants off all of them. The first thing he said was he liked them because they always included extra tracks on their singles, which were unavailable elsewhere, which made them very good value for fans. We should get into Oasis. <laughs> yeah, right? Or Suede. Yeah. It's not really the ringing endorsement I was hoping for. Marketing. Just marketing. Hmm. I did, however, give the show a fair review because they did a great job. The audience absolutely loved them. And I, I could only be so sniffy for so long about their music. I could not deny the sheer joy of what was happening in front of me. It totally worked. So I did what I never thought I would ever do. I basically wrote a good review of Westlife. Right, I said earlier that number ones are weird. I think this applies again to Westlife because in a way, Westlife only really exists at number one. Apart from You Raise Me Up, which I think did cross over and become an actual proper hit in the outside world, the singles did tend to enter the charts at number one, stay there for one week and then drop very quickly out of the top ten. It does make me wonder whether their singles only ever sold to their committed fan base or whether any of them ever attracted any casual punters purely on the merits of that particular track. Now, I could just about imagine World of Our Own attracting a few casual punters, as it's not a typical Westlife track. As you both said, it's, well, it is almost danceable, right? I timed it. It runs at 97 beats per minute. You could totally mix it with One Love by Blue from the same year. You could probably get away with it, especially if you did it after One Love by Blue, because that's a total floor filler. There are no stools involved in its presentation. That is a very rare thing for a Westlife single. It's got that dry time FM soft rock feel again. It's a bit like when Ronan Keating broke from type and released Life as a Roller Coaster. Although, obviously, it's nowhere near as good as life as a roller coaster. Because it's different, I want to like it. But I find it really hard to keep paying attention to it after the first few bars. There's just nothing there to keep my interest. For me, we're back in Cathedral City territory here. 
it's supermarket music. It sounds like the sort of thing I hear in the queue for the post office. It's almost designed not to attract attention, which is a very weird aspiration for a pop song. A little factual nugget of trivia also is that you said it was knocked off number one by Will Young's Evergreen, mm. the original of which appeared on Westlife's album World of Your Own. God, you're right as well. Wow. When did Westlife do When You're Looking Like That? Where was that in their career? Because that's totally different to everything else I know by them. Because that's the one that, if I get asked for Westlife, is kind of the only one I'm going I could play. I mean, I am starting to think early door, really early doors, this tune, the Ronan Keaton record that you mentioned, because it's it's now becoming Radio 2 almost golden hour territory in this kind of music and as i said i don't think there's anything wrong with it and uh, an awful lot of my early doors djing is the pursuit of music where i don't think there's anything wrong with it when you're looking like that is actually the same year before world of our own but i don't think it was ever released as a single ah so that's like a fan only that's underground westlife ah now i'm gonna start playing that more than in that case I'm going deep, crate digging with Westlife. Oh, you want some Westlife? Have you heard this? When they were rude boys. Yes, outrageous. When you're looking like us. I'm going to start I'm going to start hammering when you're looking like that for the uh, Westlife Mandem props that I'll be getting. I've actually sung a Westlife song live in performance in front of the public. Uh, I used to be a volunteer for a community arts mental health charity. And my role was to help them stage cabaret shows every six months. And I kind of took a lead on tied together all their ideas into a script and uh, sorting out their song choices and kind of directing it. And it was suggested that we perform Westlife's version of Bette Midler's The Rose. It was thematically in keeping with the story we were telling that time. So I did actually learn how to sing the Westlife version of The Rose. And I sort of got Stockholm Syndrome with it. I actually got to really like that song. I don't mind you raised me up either, actually. I thought you were going to say you sang Mandy. One of the other volunteers was actually called Mandy, so it's, it's surprising we never did that, really. Oh, I'd pay to watch you sing Mandy in Panto. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? We'll set up a Patreon, shall we? We'll crowdfund it. Let us continue. Here come... <laughs> this is Somebody I Used to Know by Gautier or Gautier featuring Kimbra. This was the only UK hit for Gautier. It spent five weeks at number one. First, it was interrupted for one week by DJ Fresh and Rita Ora with Hot Right Now. And then it was finally replaced by Katy Perry with Part of Me. It spent 63 consecutive weeks inside the top 100. It only exited for good in March of the following year. Topped the charts in 18 countries. It won two Grammys in 2013, including Record of the Year. Now, somebody that I used to know samples a 1967 instrumental track called Seville, recorded by a Brazilian jazz guitarist called Luis Bonfa. Gautier wrote the track. He performed all the instrumental parts apart from the bass guitar. His real name is Wally de Backer. He was born in Belgium, but his family emigrated to Australia when he was two years old. Meanwhile, Kimbra is a New Zealand singer-songwriter. She'd already had some commercial success with her debut album, including in the USA, before she was recruited by Gautier to be guest on this track. What I love about the charts is the democracy of it, in a lot of ways, is that at any given moment, it's a snapshot of what people are buying these days, streaming and what have you. And you talked about the Lion Sleeps tonight, you know, how it's it was weird in the context of what was going on at the time. But on any given week, that sold more records 
in the country than anything else. And this is what I really like about the charts because completely brand new breakthrough song from someone you've never heard of can turn up like this does and become the biggest record in the world in 2012, which is essentially what happened to this. Again, one of those ones where I was playing it around the house and I mean, Mrs. P is an Australian, but I don't think that has anything to do with it, loves it. And it's one of those songs I think you played it to anybody that they go, oh, I, you know, I've not heard this for years. I love it. I think I'd, I'd be surprised if I knew anybody who hated this. It starts off quite melancholy. I think the xylophone melody of it is fabulous. It grows and it grows and it grows. And so by the end of it, and he's screaming the somebody bit at the end of it is really great. It is one of, if not the most successful song in Australian music history. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think it genuinely is one of the biggest songs. It also answers that age-old dinner party question, name a famous Belgian. Gotcha. <laughs> there you go. So you don't have Hercule Poirot. You don't need that anymore. It's not Tintin. Gotcha is your famous Belgian. I listened to the album. I mean, I think when it came out, I bought it like everybody else did because it was massive and all that sort of thing. But I don't think I ever thought to listen to the album that it came from, which you think you would. Well, I don't know in this day and age. You like a song, don't you? And you have to go and sometimes seek out the album. So I've been listening to the album that it came from, and it's incredibly diverse. It's a really strange record that lurches between there's a song called eyes wide open which sounds like scoundrel days era aha it sounds like crywolf or something like that then it lurches into a song called i feel better which is pure motown then you've got this which i don't know how you'd classify this at all it's nothing anybody's ever heard so it's a very strange album made by somebody who i don't think wanted to or knew what it is that they really wanted to do or what they wanted to sound like it just sounds like a lot of experimentation to me slapped together which means that as an album goes it's uneven i would say bits of it are good bits of it not so good i'm really pleased that we've got a genuine banger from the 2010s because they've had a bit of a raw deal so far with the exception of perhaps black space the selection of the 2010s has been a bit rough So I'm really pleased that finally we've got a genuinely enduring and great hit, which is what I think this is. Uh, I don't think I can be objective about this, but I'll give it a go. It's one of my favourite pop records of all time. I think this is as good as Human League, Don't You Want Me, and Sweet Dreams by Eurythmics. And that is high praise for me in the world of pop music and the reason that i say i'm not sure i can be objective is because this came out when i was going through an incredibly bad for me break it wasn't bad for them they moved on but that really stuck for me and i was in a place where this type of breakup tune would just chime with me but i do think objectively it's a, an interesting breakup song. I think the call response nature where you, you get both sides of the story, again, to parallel it with Human League, Don't You Want Me Baby, there is the other voice in there. I think it's just awesome. I think in the story, you know, there's no, no one's right in it and no one's wrong in it. That's what breakups are, really. Breakups just hurt. No one's 100% right. No one's 100% wrong. Like It's mad that I never listened to the album given how much I absolutely adore this song. But what Nick said about albums and the way we consume music differently, I kind of think this is when that started for me. 
I was still buying albums, certainly through all the noughties. And then I just got to a stage where I was buying more albums than I was listening to and something had to give. And I don't want to ever, if I'm honest, stop buying singles. Uh, I love pop singles. I love the nature that they can be artists that you've never heard anything from before, maybe that you don't hear anything of in the future. Sometimes songs that you love for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, in 10 years time, you're like, oh, what was that about? But, you know, I'm quite happy to spend 99p nowadays. It's much easier now that it's only 99p than when you, you know, you used to have to go to Woolies and spend your pocket money on it. But yeah, I think the way we've consumed music, this is about the time it changed for me. It was at the time I became single and started listening to just the singles. I think the instrumental is nice and low key and not intrusive, but clever and works brilliantly with it the vocal performances are both outstanding and i think the chorus has something in it that at some point surely most people it resonates with you know maybe not when you first time you listen to it but you can remember what it felt like to be there and i i just think it's perfect pop music I'm not going to disagree with either of you. There's unanimity here. Yeah, fantastic record, and you've both described it very well. There doesn't leave me an awful lot to say about it, really. There is, in a sense, a vague parallel with um, that, say, Grace and G-Easy track, in that it's a relationship dialogue performed by an Australian artist with a featured guest. Obviously, that's where the comparison ends. It's a bit like Shakespeare's Sister. It's a track that begins one way, before the second singer comes in and subverts it and turns it into something else. And it's very unlike the Westlife track, because whereas every time I played the Westlife track in preparation for this, I just found myself drifting off and it would end. And I go, oh, God, I was meant to be listening to that. Damn, that never happened with somebody that I used to know. It, it holds your attention all the way through. It holds your attention even more when you watch that video. It's a wonderful video. I mean, it's artistically inventive, but amazingly well performed. And it does all this with this really simple arrangement. An arrangement that simple to hold your attention like that is no mean feat. Having a xylophone pick out a melody, which is a bit like a minor key version of Bar Bar Black Sheep, is quite a mad thing to do. But somehow it works. I don't really need to unpick why he made that decision. Incidentally, if we are to acknowledge the Bar Bar Black Sheep connection, that dates from around 1744. That makes it 40 years older than Plaisir d'Amour, which inspired Can't Help Falling in Love With You. Now, there can't be many other number ones which reference tunes from the 18th century. So it's kind of weird that two of them have come up in the same week. I'll admit I did have to get over the fact that Gotcha does sound a bit like Sting in the chorus because I'm not a Sting fan. But I don't think that was an intentional imitation. He strikes me as an artist with integrity especially as having had his one massive international hit, he really didn't seem particularly bothered about trying to have another one. I think he had a raw deal in that regard. It sounds like there were plenty of other tracks that were strong enough to have done a lot better than they did other than on the album. But since 2014, it looks like he has deliberately taken a backseat. He's probably made his fortune with the success of that one so he can follow his own path now. It feels to me like he's perfectly at ease with being a one-hit wonder and he has no aspirations to have a second hit. And if you're only going to have one hit, what a great hit this is to have. He's working on a new album at the moment, I think. I would seek it out, Trev. It, it is a weird album, but it's definitely worth a listen. It's something that I would listen to again in the future. There are some, There's some good stuff in there. 
Well, um, to give you the full circle of life about the breakup, whilst I was rebounding all over the place in my breakup, uh, one of my rebounds was very, very successful. And her name's Hannah. And we now have two kids together and we're very, very happy. She has the Got Yay album. And I have dropped so many hints that I would like it. <laughs> and she's still not giving it to me. And uh, so, yeah, there, there is a, a nice little uh, circle of life there. That the awful breakup that I went through ended up actually is the best thing that ever happened to me because I've now got two wonderful kids and I'm in a, a great relationship. Could be better because she could give me the Gotti album uh, that I have dropped so many hints that I wanted to do and she's not done it yet. I thought you were going to say that your ex that you split up with took your goatee album with her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what the song says, isn't it? Well, yeah. No, she didn't take it. She got a mate to come round and take the Gautier album, if we're going to to follow the story and the lyrics. There was some stuff in the uh, Gautier song. Some of the stuff, yeah, that did happen. But actually, no, she left all of her albums and I had to go through some crap. Thank you very much. We need to do some voting. As those of you who listened to the Express Results Bulletin will already be aware, we are in an extraordinary situation this week because the 60s, 70s and 80s have now drawn a level at equal first place. So everything has been bust wide open. Well, at least if you're those three decades, it is. So let's do some voting. I'll start with mine. Most bad and hated. It's got to go to Westlife because I just couldn't concentrate on it. I couldn't even concentrate on it enough to hate it. Just slips away from me every time. That gets the minus one. Met Zone, that's going to be Elvis Presley and Type Fit. Third place, I am giving to Shakespeare's sister. I respect the artistic daring that went into it, even though I'm personally sick of it. Uh, So it's like an objective third place, if you like. Second place goes to Chicory Tip. Third place absolutely has to go to Gotye and Kimbra. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good this week, I think. I d- can't say I dislike any of these, really. I think it's been a, a strong week. So my minus one is going to go to Shakespeare's sister, just because, I don't know, I just I feel a bit like I don't think I'd miss it. It was nice to hear it, a bit like being reunited with someone who wasn't a friend, but somebody you used to work with. Somebody that you used to work. Yeah, exactly. Somebody you used to work with uh, 30 years ago. Oh, hello, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. All right, I've got to finish my shopping. That sort of thing. But, you know, you don't want to go out for a drink with it. In the mayor zone, I will put The Lion Sleeps Tonight from the 80s and also Son of My Father, only because I actually do like the song, but I do prefer the other versions of it. So I think this, is, for me, is the weediest of the three. Third place, Elvis. Like I said, I don't super love the production, the arrangement on it, but it is a classic. In second place, I'm going to stick up for Westlife. I genuinely think it's a great little pop record, that. So Westlife in second for the 2000s, and absolutely by a mile, 2010s Gucci as my number one, please. I really struggle with last place in this because I don't dislike any of these songs, and uh, I I think it's really unfair that it's, chicory tip because i don't hate it at all i think it's a good song i think it's interesting it's just i think it's an incredibly strong week uh this week there's not wrong with westlife but it would have been unfair for westlife to be in last place because i do think that's a better pop song just missing out on the top three 
unfairly, I think, Shakespeare's sister. But the top three is a really strong top three for me. I've just gone tight fit for three. It could have been second. And, you know, let's face it, some of Elvis Presley's stuff isn't without problems. But I did scratch the surface. Kind of wish I hadn't. The original songwriter was treated really horrifically. And I, I actually think that's been redressed eventually, but not in his lifetime. He died in 1962, which is really, really sad. So that sort of marred it slightly for us. That said, second place for Elvis. It's a strong second place, really, because it's a strong record. But by another division really they could all be championship songs and they are great championship songs but got you as the uh, premiership title winner by so far i just think it's almost beyond description interesting set of results here a lot of those votes cancelled each other out with one exception there was really no consensus between us at all this week they're tightly bunched at the bottom of the pack actual last zero points is shakespeare's sister for the 90s then, one point ahead of Shakespeare's sister, we've got a three-way tie for third equal, one point each for Chicory Tip, Tight Fit, and Westlife. Second place, three points, Elvis Presley. First place, nine points, Gotye and Kimbra for the 2010s. I, I have a feeling this is the first time that we've all given maximum three points to the same song. I can't see. I, I don't know. I look forward to seeing it, but I can't see it being any different on the public vote either, if I'm honest. I hope that's the case, but you just never know how these things are going to play with the outside world. Are the 60s in trouble? Will Elvis Presley send them tumbling from pole position? Total nail biter. If you want to vote, these are the ways in which you can do it. On Twitter, we are at which decade tops. Email which decade is tops at gmail.com. Facebook, search for which decade is tops or pops. You'll get to the page, either leave a comment or send a private direct message. You must specify your first, second, and third favourites in descending order of preference, no tied positions, plus your most bad and hated. Any additional comments, very welcome indeed. We'll read them out in the results bulletin next time, or at least a selection of them. Your voting deadline this time is 6pm UK time, Wednesday the 15th of March. I am now going to reveal the songs for episode 10 to these two. So for now, it is goodbye from me, goodbye from Nick. Ta-ta. And goodbye from Trev. Ta-ta. Goodbye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?